Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast Seminar. Our guest today is Professor of Clinical Biochemistry at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom, Terence Keeley. Professor Keeley is the author of The Economic Laws of Scientific Research, 1996, and then Sex, Science and Profits in 2010, and Breakfast is a Dangerous Meal, Why You Should Ditch Your Morning Meal for Healthy for Health and Well-Being in 2016. Uh, Professor Keeley's book, uh, The Economic Laws of Scientific Research, was particularly influential on uh, my um, 
intellectual development as well as my career. I read it when I was in graduate school uh, about 13, 14 years ago, and it uh, fundamentally transformed the way that I uh, thought about economics and research. Um, and it helped me um, become more friendly to free market ideas and ideas of uh, how um, economic systems function without uh, the need for central planning. And that led me down the path of studying Austrian economics, which later on was enormously important in my ability to understand uh, Bitcoin and then write about Bitcoin and become um, eventually leaving my uh, career in academia and uh, working independently in uh, producing uh, Bitcoin research and uh, Bitcoin podcast and teaching economics on my university um, as an independent scholar running a business uh, online rather than working at a university. And I think a lot of that was down to um, what Professor Keeley taught me about the way that uh, scientific research works and the economics of scientific research. So I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Keeley here. Thank you, Professor, for joining us. Thank you. That was a very exciting introduction. I'm, I'm delighted by <laughs> what you said. It's a story that's very exciting for me. So thank you. Thank you so much. So I think the, um, the focus of our discussion today is uh, probably going to be on uh, the economic laws of scientific uh, research. So could you tell us a little bit about that book and uh, what drove you to write it and uh, what are the main arguments of it? Thank you. Well, what drove me to write it was I was a biochemist in Britain working at the bench in the 1980s when Mrs. Thatcher, who was then a very radical prime minister, cut, in a small way, the government funding of science. And she did so because Britain, the British government, funded more science per capita than any other country in the world. And yet the British economy in the late 70s, early 80s was doing so badly. And so she said, Clearly, if the British government is funding more science per GDP per capita than other Western countries, and yet we're falling so far behind, it can't be as important as everybody said. Well, what struck me was the consequences of her cutting, a very modest cutting, by the way, but the British scientific community erupted in rage and very quickly started producing statistics showing how British science was being destroyed by Mrs. Thatcher. But the problem with those arguments is that I was a scientist, both at Oxford and then later at Newcastle. And my experience was in both universities that in Thatcher's time, the pressure to grow was incredible. We were getting more scientists in the lab every year. We were building more labs every year. And we were getting more money every year. And yet at the same time, the scientists both in Oxford and Newcastle were going out saying that British science was collapsing. And when I challenged them, I got a very interesting story from the Oxford scientists. I was told, you don't understand. Oxford, Cambridge and London are being protected by Mrs. Thatcher, but the rest of the country is a desert. When I was in Newcastle, they said, you don't understand. For electoral reasons, Mrs. Thatcher is protecting the provinces, but the heart of British science, Oxford, Cambridge and London, is a desert. And that was the first time I realized that an entire scientific community can just say something that's simply not true. And so then I find, started to find out what the truth was. And the truth comes down to a very interesting phenomenon, which is very rarely talked about. It's called crowding out. And what that phenomenon means is that when the government funds something, it crowds out its private funding. So, for example, 
if the government supplies all the schools for free, people do not send their children to school and pay for it because the government is providing it for free and all the four payment schools close. And it was the same in British science. What I discovered, it wasn't hard to discover, but it was as if no one else wanted to discover. What I discovered was that when the British government under Mrs. Thatcher cut funding for university science, quite modestly, but it did cut it, the growth in the private funding of university science, both in charities and companies, more than doubled. I, for every pound the British government took away from the universities, the private sector was putting in more than two pounds. So what I discovered was that as the British government pulled out of funding universities in Britain, the private sector more than compensated, and yet the British scientists, in an extraordinary act of collective blindness, hadn't seen that. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I think that's very interesting too. And I'd add, um, I think the particular, uh, the particularly most interesting part perhaps of your book is the historical analysis that uh, looks deep into the history of the Industrial Revolution and the nature of government funding of science there. So uh, one pretty amazing uh, fact, which doesn't get mentioned uh, many places other than in your book, is the, is the fact that Britain was one of the very few places in the world that did not fund uh, science, or specifically one of the places in Europe that did not have public funding for science during the time of the Industrial Revolution. And that doesn't seem to have uh, hampered industrial progress much, has it? Well, it's even more dramatic than that. Uh, let me just show you something. I brought this book just to show you it's called The Power of Creative Destruction. Uh, the prime author is Philippe Agion, who's a, a French professor of economics, very distinguished. Um, this was reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, The Economist. It, only, it came out only a few weeks ago. And uh, at its launch, there was an international conference of foot lasting four days. Over 100 sci uh, economists spoke. 11 of them were Nobel Prize winners. One of them was Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. How many book launches get a country's president along? And yet what Philippe Ajon says in this book is that it is impossible to industrialize without the government funding of science. It is inconceivable, he says, that a state could take off economically unless the government funds science. And it is extraordinary that such a historical misconception could be written today in 2021. Because you're absolutely right. The one country in Europe where the government did not fund science was Britain. And, that, and that's actually why there was an industrial revolution, because Britain was what they call a night watchman state. The British state did essentially nothing but run a police force, and not even very efficiently, by the way. But the result is that no one had captured the state. And so taxes were very, very low. People were free to do what they wanted. Whereas in France and Germany, huge taxes. People were not free to do what they wanted because they weren't particularly free citizens. And those companies and those interests that were already established doing whatever it was, that were threatened by innovation, were able to use the power of the crown to stop innovation. It was because Britain was a night watchman state, a laissez-faire state, that between about 1790 to 1890, it created the British Industrial Revolution, which was the world's first and what's really interesting is the world's second industrial revolution was the United States of America. 
And from 1890 to the present day, the United States of America has been the richest, most successful country in the world. But the American government did not start funding science until 1950. So between 1890 and 1950, the America was the richest, most technological developed country in the world, actively no government funding of science. And so the two great industrial nations, first Britain and then America, became industrial because the government left the economy alone. And that is the most important lesson that the history teaches. And yet, the major teachers of scientific economics today, to this day, propagate a story that's just incorrect. It is an extraordinary phenomenon. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Um, and, and the complete ability to ignore the uh, evidence uh, of just uh, the lack of government funding for science that went into the Industrial Revolution is also amazing. I mean, if you think about it, uh, the most important things that gave us the Industrial Revolution, probably the steam engine um, and the, you know, the proto steam engines that existed before it. You discussed the evolution of all of these during the Industrial Revolution and it was people out there in workshops innovating and coming up with more efficient ways of doing things over decades and centuries that gave us the um, engine and it wasn't these um, you know we later developed theories to study the um, thermodynamics involved but it was not the thermodynamics that gave us the uh, steam engine absolutely not you're absolutely right um, it was surprisingly ill-educated sometimes even near illiterate workmen playing with machines that were essentially developed to pump water out of coal mines and tin mines. And they were basically playing with the technology in their very isolated communities. I, there, there must have been an awareness of what was going on in gas science in London and in France and in the Netherlands. But essentially, these were men, all men, I'm not being sexist here, it just was all men. These were men working in their workshops, improving the tools that inherited from their fathers, 
and through trial and error in the absence of academic science creating the industrial revolution the industrial revolution in britain owes nothing to science it was absolutely all in the workshop as adam smith explained very clearly in 1776 in his book the wealth of nations he, he of course observed the early part of the industrial revolution and he said look it's got nothing to do with universities and nothing to do with science these are men again i'm not being sexist it's just how it was in those days these are men in their workshops improving technology through common sense and creativity and trial and error and that's how we got an industrial revolution and it is extraordinary that the story I mean, is completely forgotten now but i can tell you why it's forgotten would you would you like me to tell you how the error grew please it all happened funnily enough in the united states of america and the united states of america is the dominant power everything that happens in america the rest of us copy that's just how the world is and what happened in america essentially was sputnik before 1957 the american government there was a small amount of funding from the national science foundation but it wasn't very important and in any way it, it failed I, I i could go into that but I, i'll leave that for one side there was a small amount of funding but it was largely nominal the american government didn't essentially fund science until 1957 but in 1957 the russians launched sputnik and it's very hard to believe they hard to understand now but the crisis of terror this caused in america well you brought, if you you got to read the literature of the time but the americans really believed that Russia was going to destroy them by dropping nuclear bombs on them from space. And then, of course, it wasn't just Sputnik, which was the first artificial satellite. Then the Russians put the first animal into space. It was a dog. Then the Russians put the first human into space, Yuri Gagarin. And the Americans felt that they had lost the space race. And the danger was, as I said, that Russia would destroy America from space. And so America, under John Kennedy, of course, created this huge desire to uh, go to the moon first. But in 1958, and this is the key date, in 1958, before Kennedy, under Eisenhower, in 1958, the Americans produced DARPA, which is Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, NASA, again, 1958, and also the Defense Education Act. This was pouring government funds into science, which created a problem. And the problem was this. This meant that America was accepting that the Russian Soviet system seemed to be more efficient than the American free enterprise capitalist system. And that was very difficult for America to accept. And so uh, an organization called RAND, the RAND Corporation, employed two economists, Ken Arrow and Richard Nelson, and basically charged them with inventing an economic model which basically said the free market is, be is best, but it depends on the government funding of science, only the government funding of science. Other than that, it has to be the free market. And that's what Richard Nelson and Ken Arrow did. But they did it, I'm afraid, in ways that are simply intellectually not acceptable. Economists have two sorts of market. And here, people have to understand something very, very important. Economics is not intuitive. The science of economics is completely alien to normal people. And this makes it very, very difficult for society to judge what economists are saying. So economists believe in two sorts of market, classically competitive market and neoclassically competitive markets. 
Classically competitive markets are the markets we all understand, the markets that Adam Smith described or David Ricardo. Classical markets are companies competing with each other. But neoclassical markets are the ones that economists invented around 1890, 1900. And it's a very interesting exercise in neoclassical market. You have an infinite number of companies and an infinite number of producers and an infinite number of consumers and an infinite number of products, all of which are interchangeable. And knowledge is shared. There, there, is, there are no company secrets. In this mythical market, and it's completely mythical, certain things happen and certain things don't happen. Of course they don't because it's a myth. One of the things that doesn't happen in a neoclassical competitive market is research. It's very easy to show why that should be. We don't have to get into that. But what Richard Nelson and Ken Arrow said, look, they said, the most competitive market of all is a neoclassically competitive market. We have all these companies competing with all these consumers. What could be more competitive than a neoclassical market? But research doesn't happen in a neoclassical market. Therefore, governments have to fund it. And because 99.99% of people don't know how to read an economics paper, everyone said, fine, Ken Ken Arrow won a Nobel Prize, by the way. Ken Arrow and Richard Nelson have proved economically that governments have to fund science because the more competitive the market, the less science it happens. It's a total myth. The only people who knew it wasn't true were fellow economists, but they weren't going to explode the myth because the consequence of the Ken Arrow, Richard Nelson story was that governments poured science at American universities. And the American academic who said, actually, we don't need this money, would suffer the sort of fate that I suffered when I first started saying that, universal hatred, because people want their universities to be funded by the government. And so none of us believes in conspiracies. None of us is a conspiracy theorist. But this is the nearest you're going to get to a real conspiracy. The economists knew this was rubbish on the part of Richard Nelson and Ken Arrow, but it was in their interests. And no one else could see through it. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, in general, the incentives around uh, science and economics are uh, quite uh, blatantly conflicted in a way that um, is obvious to everybody who should know economics. And, you know, economists themselves will talk about the problems of monopoly funding and uh, price controls in all kinds of uh, different uh, fields. But somehow that does not really uh, apply to their analysis of their own field and the funding of their own jobs. Uh, but if you really look at it, you know, it's, um, it's just another example of a monopoly uh, uh, provider of a good. And the monopoly provider themselves decides for the consumers how much they need of this. And they decide how much funding is needed. And I think the key concept that, that is really important in my mind is there is no opportunity cost for the central planner. And this is, I think, the central fundamental insight that Ludwig von Mises brings on um, into his critique on socialism. The problem of socialism, you know, there is the incentive problem. We know of the incentive problem. But even if we assume we get rid of that, when we create the new socialist man who is a complete angel, the real problem of socialism is not incentives. The real problem of socialism is calculation. And it's precisely about the fact that without the private ownership of the uh, factors of production, the owners of those factors of production or the ones who are able to make the decisions with them cannot make 
efficient, productive decisions and cannot know where to allocate these resources unless they can calculate it in terms of its real opportunity cost, unless they are the ones who face the opportunity cost. So if you don't have private property, they can't think of the opportunity cost of the capital that they're allocating. And that necessarily results in the collapse of socialism as an economic coordination mechanism. Without private ownership, there can be no division of labor and there can be no extensive economic capitalist system and there can be no long-term accumulation of capital. And that's exactly the same thing that happens in the process of um, education and in academic research because there is one buyer it's uh, the government that buys for everybody. You know, the government decides how much science society needs. And uh, it's the people who are in charge of these allocation decisions do not face an opportunity cost. They are not allocating capital from their own pocket. That money is, uh, you know, they don't face a real opportunity cost for it. In fact, they face the incentive to spend as much as they can. And the scientists obviously want to spend, want to receive as much money as they can. And the universities want to get as much money as they can. So everywhere the incentives are toward more and more money. Whereas because it is not a free market, the... Um, the uh, you know, the, the, the market discipline is replaced by um, a process where everybody faces that incentive to increase more and more of the production rather than focus on the quality. You're so right. And you're so right about von Mises. Of course, he, together with von Hayek, pointed out that under a social system, without prices that are a true reflection of the cost of production and, and without the profit that comes from allocating the resources accurately, then then that just builds on the chaos that you've described. Your analysis of, of von Mises and the free market and, and socialism is completely correct. It's even worse than you described, though, because um, for the scientists, they have persuaded government, all governments, uh, that the money should be distributed by the scientists. And so what happens is the money is given by government to National Science Foundation or National Institutes of Health or the MRC in Britain, and it's the same all over the world. And then the scientists discuss amongst themselves where the money should go. It's complete capture by the producers. It's absolutely brilliant. But every vested interest is aligned. So the government loves giving money to science because the sums of money are relatively small, 1%, 2% of GDP. Although if you look at the sums of money, they're not that small. But in exchange for these sums of money, they can go around the, 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 the politicians pretending to be like Medici, you know, patronizing Galileo. And so, for example, when in 2000 the human genome was sequenced, the person who declared it to the world, standing on a podium with all the television cameras, was President Clinton. And he was taking all the credit, even though, ironically, this was a largely privately funded exercise. But politicians take the credit. In Britain, we've seen the politicians take credit for the vaccine, and one can carry on with this. But we can talk about the vaccine separately, perhaps. But the point is, because the vaccine was a private success, by the way. Uh, but the point is, although the vaccine was a private success, um, in England, uh, Boris Johnson was able to take the credit for that. So politicians love funding science. Scientists love fu the government funding science because they do it on their terms. And funnily enough, industry loves it because industry doesn't understand. Industry thinks it's getting a subsidy for its own science. What it, so that's what it thinks. That's why it supports it. What industry doesn't see is crowding out. The reason government funding of science does not stimulate economic growth 
and I'll come on to the empirical evidence in a minute, but the reason it doesn't work is that all the best scientists, if the government funds science the way it does, with the scientists funding each other, all the best scientists in that system, they go to work for the universities. Who wouldn't? Because you're not answerable to taxpayers, uh, you're not answerable to uh, investors, you're not answerable to management, you're just answerable to fellow scientists. And so they all the best scientists go to the universities, but there aren't that many good scientists. The numbers of great scientists are relatively small. And if all the good scientists are in the universities, you don't get the great scientists in industry, which is where you really want them. And so industry starts cutting back on its investment in research because they're not getting a return on that investment because all the people who could have given them a return are working in the university sector. So all the vested interests are aligned. The net result is slowing rates of economic yeah, that's fascinating. I think, yeah, ultimately the, uh, the, the, the problem with all government uh, spending ideas is the opportunity cost. It all sounds wonderful when you think, well, you know, they're giving all these scientists money and the scientists are making all this new science that's going to make our life so much better. But, you know, these people, you know, the smart people that are there would, in, in, in the absence of this funding, they are smart people. They'll be out there. They'll be, doing something useful for somebody. They'll be using their skills in this field in order to produce uh, value for themselves and for others. And so you, you would get this kind of um, scientific experimentation and the um, you know, learning process and the new inventions that come from it. If people were in the market, they don't have to necessarily be uh, financed by the government. In fact, you could arguably say, as we see from the example of the Industrial Revolution, we could say that when they have the market pressure, when they have the market telling them, you know, this kind of pump is good, but if you could run it a little bit faster, it would save us a lot of money. Um, how do we make this faster? Let's look at uh, all of the options. Arguably, that's a better place to be applying the scientific method, perhaps, than university journals. Um, you know, maybe without the bureaucratizing. And I think this is really the issue because um, the, the point I was getting at earlier, because without, uh, without the ability to measure things in terms of um, a, a profit, you know, without there being a boss who's saying we could really need, a, we could really use a faster pump, without there being a bottom line, you're ending up having to judge scientific output through um, ticking boxes of basic uh, requirements and essentially, you know, numbers and metrics that will inevitably be gained. And so, you know, you look at the academic publication industry today, you see, it's, um, you know, in order to get a certain job, you need a certain number of articles and a certain number of journals. And there's just an enormous inflation of journals, an enormous inflation of articles, an enormous inflation of titles, but very little actual content in these journals. Very few people read what is actually in academic journals because um, it's not really in any sense related to the real world and the real market. It's based on um, filling, filling, you know, ticking bureaucratic boxes. It's even worse than you suggest. By the way, your analysis is completely correct. But it's even worse than you suggest. I don't know if you know this, but science is going through something called a reproducibility crisis. Have you heard of the reproducibility crisis? Yes. There's a great man, yeah, great. There's a great man in Stanford called John Ioannidis, and he yeah. has shown 
that half of all published papers are wrong. I mean, it is the most extraordinary statement. The title of his paper is Half of All Published Papers Are Wrong. And it turns out he's absolutely right that it's worse than some fields than others. Some fields are very soft, epidemiology, nutrition. Uh, that's why I wrote the book on breakfast, by the way, as an illustration of how an entire field can be completely wrong. Um, so uh, on the other hand, um, my instinct is that pure physics uh, and chemistry, the numbers of false papers is, is much smaller. So it depends on the field. But nonetheless, if you look at the entire, and of course, there are relatively few scientists in physics, an awful lot of people in uh, nutritional epidemiology. So if you look at the more than half of all papers are wrong, now how could this possibly be? And the answer is that these people are not being tested by the market. They're being tested by the National Science Foundation or the Medical Research Council through a process called peer review. And peer review basically says, if you don't agree with me, I'm not going to pass this paper. So if you come up with something really important, a classic example, for example, was IVF, in vitro fertilization. In vitro fertilization first came out, as it happens in Britain, but this is not, I'm not being nationalist, I'm just saying it happens to come out in Britain. And the scientists and the gynecologists who first developed it couldn't get government grants for it. Uh, why not? Because the government granting bodies did not approve of the idea of in vitro fertilization. Well, it works the other way as well. In the field of breakfast, where everybody says breakfast is the most important meal of the day, if you try publishing a paper that says breakfast is bad for you, you try getting a grant that says breakfast is bad for you, and by the way, breakfast is bad for you, um, <laughs> then uh, that's for the book, but I'm just, it's an illustration. Or if you look at fat, everyone is told, has been told for the last 50 years, fat is bad for you, we must all eat carbohydrate. The exact opposite is true. But the point is, if you're not in the market, if you're not being tested, it's technology that keeps science honest. Science has to be tested against reality, which basically means the market. If science, on the other hand, simply is tested by peer review, then if you can satisfy the peer reviewers, your career flourishes. And if you have something like epidemiology or nutrition, where there is so much data, you can always select just the bits of data you want to give the results you want without actually cheating or lying. Then you get this terrible situation where half of all published papers are wrong because people are simply publishing papers to satisfy the peer reviewers, selecting the data accordingly with absolutely no concern as to what is actually happening in reality. Only markets, because they are a test of reality, or technology. Technology is what happens in markets. And so it's exactly as you describe, but even worse than you describe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it um, dispassionately, the peer review system is perfectly suited for developing groupthink. It's a perfect uh, mechanism for a bunch of people to get together or what is called, I think, the firehouse effect where firemen spend a lot of time with each other doing nothing but talking and then they develop weird beliefs um, that they share with each other because they spend all of this time alone, isolated from the rest of the world. And I think there's the, there's an element of that. It's um, it's highly likely that um, you know if once research has taken one direction in a certain uh, field, such as for instance, the ridiculous notion that you know animal fats are bad for you, but industrial waste is good for you, um, which we've 
which is a favorite recurring theme on this uh, show because uh, we've also had um, Nina Teichels who wrote uh, the book The Big Fat Surprise. Uh, we've hosted her before and we've discussed this. It's an astonishing story and um, it's very easy with statistical papers. There's always a way to around it and in all those fields that rely on statistics, um, you need to take everything with a bucket of salt because uh, it's very easy to make papers that uh, achieve whatever result you want. You know, you just run, um, you, you're doing statistics and you can uh, cherry pick the data, you can cherry pick uh, the methods that you want, you can keep running data until you get the result that you want. You're likely to always um, find spurious correlations that can fit with the narrative and the story that you want to s sell. And uh, the attrition has gone completely down that path in a way that is completely devastating. You know, it might be the deadliest uh, mistake on earth, if you think about it. This has killed possibly more people than all the wars of the 20th century combined. Um, think about how many people die early because of uh, the fact that they think they're looking out for their health by avoiding the traditional animal fats that all their ancestors ate and instead replacing them with this industrial uh, sludge. Nina is a great, great person. There are three giants in nutrition, and what's extraordinary about the three of them is they're not scientists. All three of them are journalists. Nina was a journalist. Um, uh, Michael Pollan, who talks about the importance of animal of, of plant products and the one who discovered all about sugar and, and also salt. Gary um, Tobbs. Gary Tobbs, thank you. Uh, yeah. So Gary Tobbs is a journalist, Nina's a journalist, and Michael Pollan. Now, they don't fully agree. Michael Pollan would have us be much more vegetarian, Nina, but all three of them essentially have shown that the established story is completely wrong. And the reason it had to be journalists who broke the news for us is exactly your business of groupthink. There's a very, very, very great man, really a very great man called Fleck. Um, uh, his first name will come back to me. He was the first scientist who in 1935 showed that scientists work in groups. And he influenced hugely people like Thomas Kuhn or Robert Merson and all the later philosophers of science like fire ardent. And he pointed out that scientists work in groups. And the reason they work in groups is that knowledge is tacit. That's to say, knowledge is not explicit. I, if I produce for you, I know you, you know an awful lot about Bitcoin. But if I were to give you a, a piece of paper telling you how to clone a gene, you wouldn't have a clue. Only professionals in the fields can clone genes, can read each other's papers. And so only very few people have the specialized knowledge to help each other. And you need People, you can't do things alone. You have to work. Even your competitors, you have to work with. It's very easy to show that. And so Fleck, back in 1935, said that what scientists do is they actually create group think organizations. And he gave names to them. And all sociology and philosophy of science subsequently has completely concurred with that. That's what scientists do. But the result is that uh, the peer review system, which is that, in a sense, writ large, is a horribly confining way of thinking. Now, Aristotle, two and a half thousand years ago, said the scientist should pursue truth respective of how many people he offends. But the trouble is, in the modern world, if you have to worry about offending people, you won't, you know, if you, you won't get your grants, you won't get your publications, you won't get your promotion, you won't get your tenure, you won't get your jobs. And so science is built 
on subscribing to established points of view. It's very dangerous. Only the market, very important, only the market protects you because the market doesn't give a damn about your group thing. The market wants to know, does this car actually work? Does this airplane actually work? And all the science in the world is irrelevant. All they just want is technology that's good. Once you move away from the market, that's when you enter into these terrible fields that are actually rather sordid in the end. This is, um, to a very large extent, um, a reflection of uh, some of the arguments in my next book, The Fiat Standard, which will be out in a couple of months. And in this book, I um, so in the Bitcoin Standard, I discussed Bitcoin. And I, you know, I explained Bitcoin from first principles as a monetary system and how it works and what the implications of it are. And then in the fiat standard, which is my next book, I looked at the fiat monetary system and tried to explain it also from first principles, which is, uh, in my opinion, turned out to be a, um, a pretty useful way of understanding the economic forces that are uh, created when you have this mechanism for uh, money that is centralized and under central control, which is the central bank. And effectively under the fiat monetary system, you know, um, new money is mined into existence, to borrow a term from Bitcoin. You know, we mine Bitcoin, we mine gold, we mine fiat when any entity guaranteed by the government or the central bank issues debt. You're absolutely right. It's bankers lending money that create money. Exactly. And so when you think about it this way, um, the government's credit is what is the native token of the fiat monetary system. And that allows the government an enormous amount of uh, influence on all of these monetary, on all of these non-monetary aspects of society, including science. You know, there's just never been a f real genuine crisis of funding for science because there's always more debt, there's always more money printing, and the funding numbers always go up. You know, the, the, the amount of money being spent it might go through a hiccup for a few years here or there. Thatcher might make a cut here or there. But in the long run, looking at the past 60, 70 years, the amount of funding for science, like the amount of funding for pretty much everything else, only goes up. It only heads in the direction of up because there's no opportunity cost and because the money is constantly devaluing. And um, this inevitably means more and more government influence on these aspects of society. You know, the market for food is heavily influenced by the government's ability to grant credit. And so large farmers, large farming conglomerates can get um, credit at better rates than small farmers and they can produce with better economies of scale. So that has completely distorted the market for food production. We see the same thing in science and we see all of these... Um, all of these patterns repeat in many sectors of the economy that are massively distorted because, um, you know, when you when one part of the market has a money printer where they can just grant credit infinitely, um, they are going to have a very, very uh, strong influence on the market. And I think this is what we see in science and this is what we see in nutrition and we see it in uh, medicine in many, many, many areas. And this, uh, in, in my mind, is kind of the, um, you know, if I were to sell you on the bigger picture of why Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a free market way of doing money. So it's a way to undercut the entire government monopoly and all of the government influence on all of these aspects of society which is primarily down to the control on the monetary system. Bitcoin is an alternative monetary system 
whose supply can't be controlled by government and whose um, protocol rules are distributed and controlled by their by the users individually and which doesn't have a central authority in charge of it. So let me just ask you a question. Mm-hmm. How therefore is the decision made to increase more currency in the Bitcoin system? So there's a schedule that was uh, put for the production of Bitcoin before Bitcoin started to operating. And uh, the network has been um, basically going by that schedule since then. So uh, nobody can really change it. The the way it works is every 10 minutes, new block of uh, transactions is mined. And with it, there's a reward of a new amount of Bitcoin that is produced. So for the first four years, it was programmed to do 50 new bitcoins every 10 minutes. And then for after the first four years, approximately four years, it drops to 25 every 10 minutes. And then four years later, it dropped to 12 and a half. And now it's at six and a quarter. So at this point, we've already had about 18.8 million bitcoins mined. And as time goes on, the daily production declines because it drops by half every four years. So we've still got another uh, about 2.1, 2.2 million uh, coins to be mined uh, roughly over the next century or so. That's very, very interesting. Yes, so nobody can make more of it. And you were a very early adopter, were you? Um, not, not early enough, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I mean, I heard about it, but I was an academic, and uh, unfortunately, you know, I had uh, I was I heard about Bitcoin relatively early, but I had too much of the um, uh, smart ass academic attitude of oh, oh well, here's why it can't work, and so I heard about it early, and I kept watching as it. Um, continued to rise but i always thought you know clearly it won't work and i wasn't very well informed about it like basically all bitcoin critics are generally uninformed about it and so for a very long time i was um uh, a bitcoin i mean uh, to be fair i wasn't uh, i wasn't a bitcoin hater i wasn't expecting i wasn't hoping that it would fail i was just i couldn't see how it could work and so i wasn't early enough to get in on it um, but then later on, I began to really pay attention and start to read it and start to realize, okay, this is uh, very interesting because it's a, it's a new invention and it's, um, you know, you can think about it as a technological invention rather than a uh, network. It's not, it's not Facebook. It's not uh, Amazon. It's not a company with a CEO. It's, I guess, more similar to the steam engine. It's, it's a way of doing uh, money. And it's, um, it's an idea that just gets around. Anybody in the world can run some software on their uh, computer in the same way that anybody in the world can make a steam engine in their uh, workshop. So anybody can make Bitcoin. Anybody can join this network. And it's an open network that nobody controls. And it operates through the fact that nobody uh, controls it. And we've seen it over the last 10 years. It's really proven uh, over and over that nobody really is in charge. Just very, very quickly, because I, I don't want to bore your viewers who will know this, but just for my sake, what sort of academic were you and where were you an academic? I was uh, a professor of economics at the Lebanese American University. Oh, really? How very interesting. Yeah. So when I talked about classical and neoclassical economics, you knew what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd uh, studied, uh, I'd done a PhD at uh, Columbia University in sustainable development. And before that, I had a master's degree from the Lebanese, from uh, London School of Economics. 
um, in development management. So I had studied economics um, from a mainstream perspective, but then toward the final years, I started reading some Austrians and uh, started reading, you know, things uh, that are not recommended in the syllabus. And so then here I am. <laughs> Very good. Oh, I'm delighted to hear that story. One thing led to another, and now, you know, I'm in Bitcoin. <laughs> what is very interesting about the government funding of science, by the way, is um, the numbers of studies that have come out showing empirically that the government funding of science doesn't work in terms of economic growth. And the best source of these studies, incredibly, uh, is the agencies of the American government. So the Congressional Budget Office... Uh, and uh, has produced two reports over the last 20, 30 years. Huge analysis of the actual, just the empirical data, showing that the government funding of science simply doesn't work, whereas the private funding of science is what yields all the economic growth. Uh, the OECD produced a report in 2003, again, only empirical, showing that the government funding of science across all the nations of the OECD over a 21-year period had produced no economic growth, only the private funding, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics in Washington, D.C. had also produced such a study, and the Defense Department had produced such a study. And I think it's a very interesting fact, which is very hard to understand. I don't really understand why the most effective destroyers, empirically, of the fact that governments should fund science have come agencies, either the American government or OECD, which is, of course, hugely influenced by America. But these reports that are so beautifully written and they're so defensively written because they know they're going to be attacked, they've made no impact at all. 99% of people still believe that governments should fund science, even though the empirical data is very clear that it's not the case. Very interesting example of how people believe one thing in the face of evidence and the other. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, to their credit, I mean, I think it, it's uh, we should give them credit for coming up with this. But yeah, the, the track record is pretty uh, is is pretty obvious um, when you look at it a little bit critically. Other points that you mentioned in your book, which would be worth discussing, uh, Japan. Uh, Japan. A lot of people bring up Japan as an example of uh, government funding of technology and science leading to economic growth. What is your take on that? Well, it's a complete myth. When I wrote that book, in, by the way, I'm writing a new book, bringing everything up to date. But when I wrote that book in 1996, uh, it was very obvious what the facts were. Japan, contrary to all myths in those days, was the only country, the only industrialized country in the world where the government funded less than half of all academic science. So in 1996, when that book came out, Every other industrialized country in the world, the state was funding something like 85% of academic science, but not in Japan, less than 50%. Equally, Japan, like Switzerland, when you look at R&D, which is this broader, so academic science is just academic science. Research and development is a much bigger thing, which is all the stuff that industry does as well. And Japan and Switzerland, as it happened, were funding, the state was funding only 10, 15% of R&D. Whereas in every other country, it was about 50-50. So Japan, completely contrary to myth, was the one industrialized country where the government didn't fund science. And yet, bizarrely, the myth arose that MITI, the, minister, the Ministry of Industrial Technology, uh, had somehow led Japan into this fantastic economic growth. All this, of course, was before the crisis that Japan got into. Um, and um, how myths like that grow, I really don't understand. 
Because even if you look at the projects that MITI had propagated, like nuclear power, the MITI-inspired projects had all failed. And so in the end, what you have is a story that MITI, as a very good ministry, had helped coordinate with the companies of Japan what their needs were. So if this company said, look, we need protectionism, and of course, Japan grew behind protectionism. No one ever talks about it now. But Japan, like Britain, like America, grew behind protectionism. They exported like anything. It was impossible to import into Japan. And basically, what MITI did is it went to the big companies and said, what do you need in the way of protection? We'll give it to you. What do you need in terms of access to foreign markets? We'll negotiate that for you. And MITI put out a brilliant, but the reality is that Japan was the most laissez-faire country in the world right up to the time that its system collapsed. Since the collapse of the system, it's been growing much more slowly because actually it got as rich as everyone else and you can't grow more than 2% a year once you're in the lead. Um, then the government of Japan has put much, much more money into science in the hope somehow of getting back to the magical days when Japan was growing at 10% a year. But once you're a lead country, you can grow at only 2% a year. And Japan has continued to grow at that percent or even less. And the government has poured money into science to absolutely no effect. Japan proves the point of Britain and America of growing under laissez-faire, no government or little government funding of science behind protectionism. That's how you grow. But trying to get these facts out in the public domain, apart from you, very difficult. Yeah, Bitcoiners uh, generally, um, once you've gotten to the point where you think and accept that Bitcoin can work, then you've already made a, an enormous uh, leap against consensus when it comes to economics. Um, you know, you're uh, being called a sociopath by the New York Times. So you develop a little bit of a thick skin and you become willing to discuss uh, and look at other concepts. And so that's why I think, you know, among the Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoiners and among readers of my book, um, people, there, there's more of a receptivity to these kind of uh, heretic ideas. Um, we've discussed the... Uh, many uh, heretic ideas that you wouldn't hear elsewhere and i think it's a, it's it's um it's a wonderful testament to the um, corrupting influence of government on uh, science which is that everywhere else you know there's so many universities out there all regurgitating the same stuff ticking the same politically correct boxes talking about the same problems and suggesting the same solutions and very little diversity of thought um, in any meaningful sense when it comes to um, these questions. Um, your university, incidentally, is a private university, Buckingham University. I, uh, I, kinda, I, I just want to say, I want to support something you've said, because you've said something very interesting, and I want, to, I want to prove to you that you're right, because I think you don't know this. There are very, very, very few economists who argue that governments should not fund science. In fact, basically none, but there's one exception. Mm -hmm. A professor of economics in Melbourne at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology called Jason Potts. I don't know if you've heard of Jason Potts, but he also believes that governments shouldn't fund science, but his particular area of research is Bitcoin. So oh, interesting. The one, very interesting. So the one unconventional professional economist out there is also the one economist Who's taken a profession? He writes, he's got all these grants studying Bitcoin. You should look him up because he completely proves your theory that it's the unconventional thinker who both understands that governments shouldn't fund science and supports Bitcoin. Jason Potts, very good man. 
That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll be sure to look him up. Um, so your university, Buckingham, is a private university. I did not even know that there were private universities in the UK. What's it like operating in the black market for knowledge? I'm no longer at Buckingham. I left about five years ago. I'm now, I'm now essentially at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Okay. Uh, since the epidemic, I've gone back to England, but I'm still a research fellow there. Um, okay. So I was at so Buckingham for 15 years. So the thing about Buckingham is, let me, I mean, since you've asked, I will answer your question. Because uh, not many people understand this. Why should they? But I'm going to tell you. So actually, in Britain, all universities are private. This is something that's very rarely understood. And I'm only telling you because you asked. I wouldn't normally bore people with this. But in Britain, all universities are private. It's, it's, and that comes back, right back to the glorious revolution of 1688. Uh, and the Bill of Rights of 1689, when the British freed themselves from monarchical rule and became in all but name a republic. We essentially became a republic in 1688, 1689, but we kept the Queen because it looks pretty. And at that point, the decision was taken because of what the terrible things James II had done. He was the king we threw out in 1688. He had tried to rule the universities. In 1689, the Bill of Rights, universities were declared to be independent of the state. And so, in fact, until 1919, all British universities were like Harvard, Yale, or Stanford. Because if you look at America, the vast majority of students in America go to state universities owned by the state. But a small number of students go to the private universities, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, Princeton. So they're the ones we've all heard of, but they only educate about 10% of American students. And yet, incredibly, and there's no coincidence, the best universities in America are, are, are this small group of private universities. That cannot be a coincidence. Um, it's very interesting. They're all independent charities, the Harvards and the Yales. As, but as I said, 90% of students go to the state universities in America. In the rest of the world, you look at Europe, almost every university is owned by the state, nationalized. The first universities in Europe came out in Italy, Bologna, Padua, universities like that. They were all private initially. But over the centuries, the states throughout Europe nationalized their universities. It is a very interesting fact. The best universities in the world are Oxford and Cambridge, which are private. I'll come on to the detail in a minute. And Harvard, Yale, and the American ones. And private universities are so much better. Go to France, go to Germany, go to Spain, go to Italy. These countries are all as rich as Britain and America per capita. But their universities are rubbish compared to the ones you have in Britain and America. And it's because only Britain and America essentially have all universities, or at least some universities, being private. What happened in Britain is very sad. Because in 1919, the British universities had been bankrupted by the First World War. All their young men had gone to fight, so there was no fee income. And the inflation, we had no inflation for 100 years, between 1815 and 1914, the end of the Napoleonic Wars and 1914, 100 years later, the British pound actually increased in value. There was actually, over a century, some slight deflation. That's the gold standard, of course. And then suddenly, and so all the investments were in fixed return, 2.5%, 3%. They, were, they, were, they had you know, names that we all now remember. But all that was destroyed in the First World War when inflation destroyed the value of the pound, only to 20, lost 75% of its value, down to 25%. So the universities, which were private institutions, lost all their investments and all their fee income. By 1919, every single British university, including also in Cambridge, was trading insolvently, actually. Trading insolvently. Their debts exceeded their assets, and they were in marked deficit on their annual accounts. And so they went to the British government and said, we want money or we're all going to close. 
And so the British government started giving them money, and then with the money came control. And so by the time Buckingham was created in 1975, the entire British university system behaved as if it was nationalized. All the money came from the state. The research money came from the state. The fee income money came from the state. And the capital money all came from the state. And so they were completely nationalized in spirit. And the result of that was that the universities were particularly totally monolithic in what they taught. The universities taught socialism. Governments have to fund not just universities, but schools, science, transport, housing. The universities were total centers of socialist propaganda because that's just what had served them so well, at least they thought it had. And so Buckingham was created in 1975 to say, we need a university to defend the market. Even to this day, you go to a British university and start talking about the market that people practically spit at you. And um, <laughs> I see you nodding. Um, because it's true. Um, and so Buckingham, now Buckingham has done quite well. Uh, it came top for many years, it came top of the National Student Survey of Satisfaction. So year after year, uh, the university was proven to be the, the university that most satisfied its students. Of course, because they were paying fees. So of course, we looked after them. Um, it, it's, I, I left and it's not doing quite so well now. But, but essentially, it was a brave attempt to show that uh, the private sector, even in Britain, could do a better job than the government. And that was really proved by the fact that it came top, beating Oxford and Cambridge even, in the National Student Survey every year. It, it produced the most satisfied students every year. So Buckingham is an experiment that's worked. Um, as I say, I, I left five years ago, and unfortunately, it hasn't done quite so well in recent years, but I'm sure it'll recover. Yeah, and of course we got to remember the, uh, the 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 cards are rigged against it because uh, it has to pay taxes, whereas all these other universities are uh, um, beneficiaries of uh, tax money, or more accurately, inflation money. No, that's not quite true. Buckingham, like all the other British universities, is a charity; it doesn't have to pay taxes. But the other government, the other universities, get huge, huge losses yes. of money from the government, and of course that's not open to Buckingham. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the 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 game is a little bit uh, rigged against them, but it, this is uh, highly fascinating for me because uh, uh, so many things have their origin in 1914, 1919, and in particular the move away from the gold standard. And the fact that you tied this to the um, university system is absolutely fascinating for me. It's uh, I, I discussed this to an extent in the Theos standard. I'm going to see if I'm going to be able to sneak it into the. Uh, uh, into the draft since now it's almost on its way to the printers. Maybe I can work in a couple of paragraphs on this point. But I think, yeah, that's uh, th that makes a lot of sense because uh, the currency was uh, being devalued. There was more than 100% rise in prices over the uh, period of the war. And so, obviously, uh, everybody there, all, you know, government, universities like everybody else were facing uh, massive uh, liquidity problems and solvency problems. And um, when this happens, ironically, and this is the, the terrible thing about monetary manipulation, is that it's the one market wherein the more the government messes up, the more power the government tends to get because it ruins everybody else financially and ruins their ability to remain financially independent. But um, its own printing press continues to be the only savior available for others. So uh, that that's why, you know, hyperinflation ends up really weakening societies and centralizing them. Yeah, I think we're still suffering from that First World War, actually. Um, 
this is this is a recurring theme in the show. We we uh, generally here we think World War One has not ended, and uh, we think you know. And I I think one of my more controversial opinions is that uh, Bitcoin is the only way that we can end World War One, because it's what's going to finally take that uh, government money genie and put it back in its bottle, because it's going to take money out of the hands of the government. That is a very interesting uh, argument, but certainly if you look at I mean, if you look at 1914 or 1913, um, you see that um, both in Britain and America, the government was taking only something like 10% of GDP in taxes. But ever since then, that percentage of GDP taken in taxes has risen. And it's 1914, 1918, total war that started that process of accrediting, accrediting British government. I think you've got some questions that your viewers are asking. Yes, absolutely. Flavio wants to uh, ask you a question. Flavio, go ahead. Hey there. Thank you, Dr. Keeley. This has been a very interesting conversation. I wanted to ask about the when there was this transition into the low-fat, high-carb diet in the 70s, which we know it's been very deadly for many, so many people. I live in the U.S., so I see people that are being affected by this change in diet everywhere, all over the place. Uh, it's been greatly attributed to the big food industry. So in principle, this wouldn't be uh, attributed to government-funded science. So what would be the argument of, of government-funded science being responsible for this change? I'm afraid um, it is the government-funding science. It's not the food industry. By the way, you know, the food industry are not a group of angels. Please do not think that I, but as it happens, the food industry in this area have followed the science. And it was Maynard Keynes who once said, very interestingly, that we all think the world is run by vested interests, but actually it's run by ideas. And that's certainly the case in American nutrition. So the story in American nutrition is very simple. You had in America this fantastic and very frightening epidemic of heart attacks after the Second World War. And there was a time when something like a quarter of all deaths in America were heart attacks. Eisenhower had a heart attack. He didn't die from it. But it was a real epidemic, and no one understood where it came from. We now know it's largely cigarettes, largely, not exclusively cigarettes. But it was also the increase of nutrition in a population that had previously been relatively malnourished, or at any rate, not overnourished. So we do know that if you have people who in their young in their youth eat moderately and then at some point are given a great deal of food that tends to give you heart attacks whereas if people have always eaten too much and you continue eating too much funny enough it's not so dangerous but cigarettes are probably the worst thing of all and so an american physiologist in minnesota whose name will come back to me in a second um, uh, uh, ansel keys that was his name ansel keys came up with the idea that it was because Americans were eating too much fat. And he, he produced these data saying, look, uh, Japanese people don't eat much fat and they don't get heart attacks. Uh, Americans eat too much fat, therefore they get heart attacks. And of course, if you look at the tube of the blood vessels, the atherosclerosis is full of what seems to be fat. So it all made sense. It was complete rubbish. Ansel Keys and Nina Teachels would have been saying this a few weeks ago on this uh, podcast, because she's very good on this, Nina. She's very good on this. Um, Ansel Keys just came up with a theory. And the trouble is, he was a monster, and he was a bully, and he was a brute. And what he did was 
he went to the various funding agencies, American Heart Foundation, for example, uh, run by doctors who knew no science. And he presented himself with complete confidence. He says, I can show you that all your patients are dying because of this fat in the duct. Only give me the grant money and I'll prove it to you. And what he did was he leveraged this grant money given by these doctors who knew nothing about science um, to produce all this data. And he then captured through his acolytes, he produced his PhD students and postdocs with themselves were looking for jobs and grants. And so he captured, having captured the grant-giving body of the American Heart, he then captured the grant-giving bodies of the National Institute of Health, and he then captured the grant-giving bodies uh, of the NSF until it became impossible in America to publish a paper, to get a grant or to get promotion, unless you selected your data to show that fat kills you and carbohydrates saves your life. All of which, and I'm, there's really only one word one can use. Well, I, I'm not going to use the, a really bad word. It's just not true. It's, it's just not true. By the way, in my book, Breakfast is a Dangerous Meal, I'm going to show it to you because it's got a funny cover. She's got a little shark fin in a bowl of <laughs> shark fin made of wheat sticks. Um, I studied the first such example of mass error in science, which is breakfast. People have been saying for 100 years that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I trace where those ideas came from because it's such an interesting story. And yes, the cereal companies take the story on. But initially, it's the scientists, actually, and then the cereal companies jump in. So to come back to nitrotols and fat and carbohydrate, once the story was embedded, because in nutrition, it's so easy to select data you want, you can produce. And it's the same. So Harvard in particular, the, the nutrition people at Harvard, people, but also Cambridge in England, are the same people who said breakfast was a dangerous meal, also saying, that fat is dangerous. The same group of people using the same scientific method of selecting data because in some strange way, they felt they knew better. They, they sort of, they knew better than the data. They knew what was right and they were going to select the data to show they were right. And to repeat myself, it came from Ansel Keys, professor of physiology in Minnesota, and only then the food companies jumped in. But initially it was the scientists and it was their capture of the government funding of science that enabled them to do it, sadly. That's interesting. Um, I mean, what, what, what was their motivation for this? Was it religious in your opinion or was it... Because uh, in my mind, it makes most, more sense that it was industry that was... Uh... No, no, Ansel Keys was looking for fame. I mean, Ansel Keys ended up on the cover of Time magazine. Ansel Keys, when he retired, he retired to a little village on the coast in Italy, about 100 miles south of Naples. And to this day, you drive there, and there's a big sign of the village saying, the name of the village underneath, the home of Ansel Keys. Ansel Keys became famous. He was the man who saved the world from the terrible problem of heart attacks. He was a man who discovered what was a good diet and what was a bad diet. And he destroyed those scientists who knew that he was wrong, he destroyed their careers. In my book and in Nina Tichel's book, we tell similar stories. We chronicle both of us, the scientists whose careers he crushed. And he crushed them by making it impossible for them to get grants. And then, such a wicked thing, one or two of these scientists, particularly in Britain, got money from industry because that's the only source of money they could get for their research. And Ansel Keys turned around and said, look, 
They're getting money from industry. They're prostitutes. You know you can't trust them. So they couldn't win. No, Ansel Keys wanted fame. Most scientists want fame. And, and, and it's a very honorable thing to want, you know, in an Aristotelian sense. You know, you want to show that you've done good work and you want to be a man who is respected and credible. So but Ansel Keys had that, I'm afraid, to a pathological extent. And for him, it worked. He became one of the most famous scientists in the world, as I said. How many scientists put them, find their names in the front cover of Time magazine? Yeah, fascinating. Uh, Shikin has another question for you. Do you want to go ahead? Hey, thanks, Seth. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about basic sciences. Uh, so I, I guess we were talking about steam engines uh, and you know these applied technologies, but uh, I don't think it's always been the case historically that we've had mechanics or you know craftsmen uh, sort of developing machines, and then you know in retrospect, academic scientists or basic scientists coming in and trying to sort of build a framework for why they work the way they work. Uh, so a classic example would be somebody like Maxwell, uh, could be something like semiconductors, superconductors. Uh, so so that's uh, something that I would contend. Um, but more than that, I think uh, you mentioned something very interesting that almost no economists um, argue for, you know, a private funding of basic science. And, you know, I guess the reason is that they just don't realize uh, that historically, uh, you know, private organizations and patronage has played a great role in funding that. And, you know, as you talk about that in your book, that often, uh, you know, private investments have exceeded uh, government investments in this. So uh, so I often hear from my scientists, scientific friends, and I'm coming from a physics background specifically. So I hear a lot about um, experiments like the ALHC. I hear about, uh, you know, the Hubble telescope and, you know, all these giant telescopes that are being built. And clearly they have uh, you know, uh, given us a lot of new insight and knowledge into the physical world. And they always sort of, you know, ask, you know, how do you think this would have happened if it were not for the state funding? Uh, and uh, of course, after having read your book and going down this rabbit hole, I realized that there are always opportunity costs that they don't account for. And there are always, uh, you know, parallel mechanisms through which many of these developments could have come about. So, what I wanted you to sort of share your views uh, on is if in a parallel universe we had the 20th century without the massive state funding of basic sciences, what would have that looked like? So would we have had something like an LHC? Would we have had these giant super array telescopes? Uh, what would be the state of fundamental knowledge there? That is such a nice question. Uh, I think it would be pretty similar, but it would look different. Um, the, the universities would look different. The universities would be much more involved in teaching and much less involved in research. So the, 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 the shift of universities from teaching institutions to research universities uh, would have been much less prominent than, than we've seen. On the other hand, we would certainly see more research taking place, basic science taking place in industry and also, as you have described so well, by philanthropists. So you talk about astronomy. If you look at astronomy, astronomy is an, in, is, a, is an entire field, an entire discipline that came out of the private sector. Um, uh, for example, radio astronomy was actually a byproduct of Bell Labs. It was the Bell Labs who discovered that radio waves were coming from the stars. It wasn't government funding or anything like that. In fact, Bell Labs won a Nobel Prize for it. Um, and if you look at the great optical telescopes of the 19th century, and indeed the early 20th century in California, again, all these telescopes are being funded privately. So 
you know, the, the discovery of galaxies was a privately funded discovery made by uh, a man in Ireland who had the then world's greatest telescope. And he was a very rich man and he funded telescopes. In fact, trying to get rich people not to fund telescopes becomes a bit of a problem. It's like rich people going up to space today. Once people become rich, and in a capitalist country, people do become rich, then they like to spend their money on these sort of prestige projects. Would we have CERN? Um, I, I suspect we wouldn't have CERN, and I suspect we wouldn't have the Hubble telescope, at least not quite with the expense that they have currently engaged in. However, I once did a, 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 a calculation, and I asked myself, you know, look at the huge amount of money that the Gates Foundation has. The Gates Foundation could easily have paid for CERN if it had wanted to. So we do have private funders who could have paid for what are essentially vanity projects. I mean, CERN is not going to advance the wealth of the people of the world. It might in 300 years' time, and though I'd be surprised. But CERN, like the Hubble telescope, is about science purely for its own sake. Now, we have decided as a nation or nations that we're going to fund that out of the taxpayer. I am prepared to concede to you that in a world of strictly of only free markets, it's possible that CERN would be smaller. It would still, we would still have it. I mean, uh, in 1940, when the American government first needed um, uh, cyclotrons like CERN, they had to go to the private sector and borrow them when they were creating. The Manhattan Project started off by borrowing cyclotrons from the private sector. So we would still have these things, but they would possibly be smaller. I, I don't know. Never forget, of course, that the Americans in 1991 canceled the Super Collider project because it was essentially a defense initiative that, that was pretended not to be. But when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, the SSE, the SCCC uh, closed two years later, $3 billion lost, all those people made redundant. So the point I'm trying to make is that, and the other point I want to make before I go, 7% of all R&D industrially is funded by, is for basic science. You can't run a successful company without doing basic science because basic science is so useful to that company. And companies that neglect basic science tend to go bust. And there's a direct correlation between the amount of money a company funds in basic science and its subsequent profits. All that is in that book that you very kindly read. All that data is there. So the, the for-profit sector is, of course, going to pay for basic science because without basic science, it's not in a position to make the next advances. And on top of that, what you could call trophy science, like CERN or the Hubble telescope, is going to be paid for, I think, by philanthropists. After all, the 200-inch Palomar telescope paid for by private philanthropists. The whole of space exploration, all of Mooney Goddard's work, was paid for by the Guggenheim Foundation. Mooney Goddard, in the 20s and 30s, invented the stage rocket. So it goes up in space, you lose the first stage, you lose the second stage, and then you're there. He invented the gyroscope to control rockets. He invented the liquid fuels to control rockets. His rockets are going up to 7,000 feet. If the Second World War had not intervened, Mooney Goddard in, Ma in Massachusetts, funded by the Guggenheims, would have got a missile in space, an artificial satellite, before the end of the 1940s. Unfortunately, the Second World War intervened, and he was sent off to work on bazookas. And these things, of course, happen. And then, of course, we then had the Germans and, and the Russians. But space exploration was funded by the private sector. So I'm being rhetorical here. I'm not being aggressive. 
But don't tell me we won't have the Hubble telescope without the private sector. Damn it, we wouldn't have had space rockets without the private sector. And never forget the first thing NASA did when it was created in 1958, its very first act was to buy Mooney Goddard's patents at the cost of a million dollars. And in 1958, a million dollars was a lot of money. So, but, but for the Second World War, he would have been there 15 years earlier. So the whole of astronomy, from the 200-inch Palomar telescope to Mooney Goddard being the first person to really get up there, all of this came from the private sector. The state then moves in and crowds out, and then the military come in, and then the army come in. But there's no evidence that the private sector would fail. However, I'm prepared to grant you that a Hubble telescope might be, today's phones under the private sector might be smaller, CERN might be smaller, but the trends would be there because the philanthropic money is there as long as it's not being crowded out by the government. That, and never forget, just to repeat myself, 7% of industrial R&D goes on basic science, and industrial R&D is huge. So we're talking about big sums of money. And I guess there's a, there's a bigger ethical argument, if I may just comment on that, which doesn't seem to get across to so many people, is simply of coercion, of uh, you know, coercing, a, coercing a large part of society to pay for uh, something that um, they wouldn't have otherwise paid for, so through taxation. So I, I just find that ethically wrong. Uh, you know, so that's something that that never gets picked up by the state advocates for basic science. I I could not agree with you more. I I personally feel very strongly about that. I mean, I personally think that we're spending money on CERN and it's doing good work. I and mean, this is not an attack on CERN. Please don't misunderstand. But there are so many other things that we could be spending our money on. People are starving. People are poor. And I could not agree with you more. I, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, well, Peter has a follow-up question uh, to this. Thank you, Terence. Um, thank you, Sabe. That's, that's all really fascinating stuff. I have a follow-up question to what Shikin has just asked. It relates to applied funding for applied science rather than basic science. And I wanted to ask you, because I'm sure you're familiar with the arguments that she's made about the work of Mariana Mazzucato, who's been very influential in informing UK policy on innovation funding since uh, about 2012-13. She wrote a book called The Entrepreneurial State, which became very influential. And essentially what Mazzucato argues is that it's a misconception to attribute lots of the technological successes of the past few decades, uh, such as the invasion of the iPhone, to private industry. She makes the case that although private industry in the form of Apple, in the case of the iPhone, uh, took a number of different technologies and combined them in a novel way, actually, if you look at the individual pieces of technology that lie within the, uh, within the iPhone, for example, lithium-ion batteries, um, the micro hard drive, microprocessor, the artificial intelligence behind Siri, the multi-touch screen of the iPhone. She argues that all of these individual technologies were developed through government funding of science. So in the case of lithium-ion batteries, that was something that was developed by the Department of Energy. In the case of um, the microprocessor, that was developed by DARPA. And she goes through systematically, uh, we mentioned CERN, like HTML was invented in CERN. So she makes this case that actually 
government funding of science has been fundamental to transforming particular digital technologies. And so given that that narrative is so prominent, I just wanted to ask what your response was to people like Mazzucato that make the case that actually, although we think of these innovations as, as private, privately funded, they have a very heavy reliance on government funding for the applied research that went into them. This is a very, very good question. Um, Mariana Mazzucato is hugely influential. And um, it's therefore very important to show that she is, in fact, completely wrong. And two people have done this, or attempted to do this. I have twice written, so if you just look up, look up my name and Mariana Mazzucato and put it up on Google, my two articles will, of course, come up. I've written more than two, actually. Uh, but there's also uh, a very good Italian political economist um, called Alberto Mingardi, who's written a very careful analysis of where she is wrong. In my articles, apart from Alberto's articles, I make the following points, to which she has never responded. One, not once in any of her publications does she discuss crowding out. So for her, the government funding of science is has no opportunity cost. Um, the government does this, and not once has she worked out that where do these scientists come from? Who is being deprived of the activities of these scientists? Point number one. Point number two, her understanding of um, the, the economics of risk, as I have explained, and I'm not going to go into the publications here, but her understanding of the implications of risk is, 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 is economically incorrect. I, I shall come on to that in a minute if we have time. And thirdly, it's all anecdotal. If you look at the quantitative GDP data, if you just look at rates of GDP per capita growth in Britain, America, the world, and then you compare that to when governments started to fund science, both in Britain and in America, there's no deflection of the long-term trends. What she's actually described are situations where governments have set up programs, pulled really good scientists out of the market for these programs, some of which, but only some of which have worked, most government programs produce absolutely nothing. And then she said, look, we wouldn't have this. And she's not looked at the fact that these scientists have been pulled out of the market. She's not looked at the costs of that, the opportunity costs of that. And she's never addressed crowding out. And she's never addressed the fact that successive government reports themselves have shown if you look at GDP per capita as opposed to looking anecdotes, you get no benefit from the government funding of science. I think it's a, I think it's a, Mazzucato's work only gets a free pass because everybody wants it to get a free pass. Uh, she works at University College London, which is basically acting as a sort of great cheerleader for the government funding of science. And because she says nothing that is in itself actually wrong, uh, you know, she, I mean, she doesn't tell untruths, but because her truths are so utterly partial, uh, by only giving a partial truth, in a sense, it's very dangerous. But I've written at some length, as has Alberto Mingardi on Mar Mariana Mazzucato, and I'm very happy to point people to those publications. Yeah, I uh, I agree with you entirely on this. I think the, uh, the, the her entire case rests on the idea of not examining opportunity costs. Um, Peter, you wanted to follow up? It was a follow-up question, uh, but not, not a bit tangential. It was on patents, so I don't know if you have a further comment other than... Okay, well, let me have a further comment and then I come back to patterns. 
The other thing that Mariana Mezzicato doesn't do is she doesn't understand radical uncertainty. I'm sorry, my brain wasn't working. She says that the reason the private sector doesn't have funding science is because of radical uncertainty. You do, you're uncertain, you don't know what the profit's going to be. So it's exactly the other way around. Um, the only reason companies invest in research or anything, marketing, whatever, is because of radical uncertainty. It's because that they're trying to do something that's different from everyone else that they can get a return on their profit. The reason people invest in projects is because radical uncertainty means that that's where the profit is. If there's no uncertainty, you don't invest in it because it's a neoclassical, perfectly competitive market. I think she's got that completely wrong. But please talk to me about patents because I have very strong views on patents and I'm happy to bore you all with them. <laughs> yes, please go ahead. Unfortunately, I, I'm... Yeah, I, I unfortunately I have to uh, leave at this point, but uh, I'll join you in a couple of minutes. Uh, Peter can uh, continue uh, uh, moderating this, but I do want to hear uh, your take on patents. They're a scam. They should be abolished. They, except in pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals is a special case because um, it can cost a relatively small amount of money to copy another drug, but the costs of producing a drug, the first one hugely costs of regulation. I mean, 90% of the costs of a new drug are regulation and safety and all that. And so you do need, and the empirical evidence shows very clearly that the stronger the patents in pharmaceuticals, the more pharmaceuticals you get. But in every other field of industry, the empirical evidence is very, very clear that patents do not stimulate rates of invention, they do not stimulate rates of innovation, and they don't stimulate rates of GDP per capita. They make certain companies rich, but the price of patents is absolutely terrible. Patents are a form of securing a monopoly. That's what they're about. And therefore, they enable companies to make excessive profit. I mean, people like Bill Gates are absurdly rich uh, because of his exploitation of IPR, in intellectual property rights. What we actually want is competition. We want companies to enjoy first mover advantage. So you make a discovery, you can benefit from it for a time. But then what you want is other companies coming in and competing with you and catching up. So then you have to do more research to compete with the people who are competing with you. And the whole point of patents is to try to stop that process from happening. Let me give you an example, the most interesting example, I think. In 1903, the Wright brothers in America invented the airplane. They invented not just the, the way they did the wings, but also the propeller and all sorts of things. The Wright brothers invented the airplane. And the result was that they patented it and every time someone else tried to fly an airplane in America without paying the Wright brothers a license fee, and they didn't pay license fees in America for complicated reasons, which I'm very happy to talk about, but for now, let me just tell you the facts. The Wright brothers sued them in court and won. So when America went to war in 1917, the American army, because the, Amer the Air Force was part of the army, the American army didn't have any airplanes. The British, the French, the Germans, the Italians, they were fantastic numbers of airplanes. The Americans, where America had invented the airplane, had no airplanes. The Wright brothers didn't make any more airplanes because they were in court all the time. Glenn Curtis and the others who tried to copy them didn't make airplanes because they were sued to destruction. So the extraordinary thing is in 1917, the country that invented the airplane had no airplanes. And even by the end of the war, the Americans were flying British airplanes to British designs. But only a few days after the war was declared, Woodrow Wilson declared a patent pool. And a patent pool is where you can file a patent, but you can't actually exercise it. So you, you file it, but you can't exercise it. And between 1917 and 1975, long period of time, 
there were no patents in American aviation. In 1917, the most primitive country in the world for aviation was America. By 1975, the leading country in the world for aviation was America. <laughs> Richard Nixon in 75 then reintroduced patents because he was trying to protect incumbents because Richard Nixon was a bit of a thug was Richard Nixon. He didn't believe in free markets. He believed in helping rich people become even richer. Not a very nice man. But the history of patents in American aviation illustrates beautifully, because it's so clear-cut, that patents are designed to inhibit innovation, because that's their purpose. You take out a patent so you don't have to do any more research, because you've got the market for the next 20 years. So you don't have to do any more research, and no one else bothers to do research because they can't break into your market. That's what they're about. And we only get economic growth despite patents, not because of them. They're a medieval scam. We, should, we used to have hundreds of patents. In England, until 1601, famous parliamentary debate, everything was patented. Every industry in England was a monopoly. Everything. Soap was a monopoly. Salt was a monopoly. Beer was a monopoly. Even textiles. You know, we, the economy, everything was a monopoly. And then in 1601, Parliament abolished all monopolies except for innovations. Francis Bacon persuaded them to keep it for innovations and inventions. But actually, in, even those patents are just a medieval hangover. We should have got rid of them a long time ago. And all the empirical evidence shows very clearly that patents got nothing to do with economic growth and all to do with rent-seeking by a privileged minority. Thank you. The, the thing that I, I guess I'll ask in, as a follow-up to that then is whether your position on this has changed. Because I'd heard in a couple of your previous podcasts that you've made similar anti-patent arguments. But when I was reading The Economic Laws of Scientific Research, and this is, this is in the first half, I, ha I haven't quite finished the book yet, so maybe you come on to this more later. But it's on page 42, and you say that uh, the Itali Italians invented the patent um, because they increasingly discovered that when they were developing new products, they, they discovered they had a disincentive why would a man devote time or money on developing a better mousetrap if a competitor can then sell an identical copy? And you describe this as a problem, and that leads into a historical introduction of how Florence came to introduce the first patent in 1421. And it sounded a bit from that discussion like you, you acknowledged that there was a genuine problem in, in innovation. So I was wondering whether that's, uh, that was a, that's a position that you've, you've developed over time um, and if so, yeah. what was changed to influence yeah, well, your opinion? Um, there, there's the book. I've just, I've just checked up page 42. You're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> I wrote that in 1996, which is, what, 25 years ago? long time ago. Um, and I was still very much a practicing scientist. Um, I don't think I'd even talked to an economist. I, I don't think I'd spoken to an economist in my entire life when I wrote that book. Since writing the book, I've been very lucky. Oh, no, I know. I knew Nathan Rosenberg, so I had met economists. But I was writing as a practical scientist. And my experience of patents in my field, because I am a, a, a self-physiologist, I'm a clinical biochemist, and there's no question that patents are important in pharmaceuticals. They just are because of this problem of regulation. Uh, and so I was arguing from inexperience. Um, but I've now known for at least 15, or believed for the last 15 years, now I've looked more widely, particularly outside pharmaceuticals, which is the only industry I really knew about, that patents are a scam. And actually, they're quite a wicked scam. Um, if you look at the development of the third world, there's this thing called TRIPS, um, which is this international uh, IPR deal, which is part of the WTO. And under TRIPS, basically all patents have to be recognized so that 
poor countries can no longer do what Japan, say, did, which is behind protectionist barriers, copy. Japan grew rich the way Britain grew rich, copying the Netherlands behind protectionist barriers, the way America grew rich, copying Britain behind protectionist barriers, and Japan grew rich the same way, copying behind protectionist barriers. That's no longer available to the third world. So you hear people saying, why is there this middle income trap? Well, that's because since the WTO and TRIPS, since 1995, the traditional routes to middle-income countries becoming richer have been blocked off. You're no longer allowed to protect infant industries, and you're no longer allowed to copy for free. All that you're allowed to do, if you're a third-world country trying to get richer, is to cheap, use cheap labor to undercut Western markets through cheap labor, and, of course, export labor in the form of immigrants. Um, and it's all, I'm afraid, it's all a bit of a scam. Rich people make it, find it very easy to do R&D, and make new discoveries, and they then exploit the law to maintain their wealth so they don't have to do any more R&D. I'd be interested to get Safe's take on that because I'd, I'd imagine, I think for most of us in this group, the idea that protectionism was something that contributed to the success of the countries like Britain and America would sit fairly uncomfortably with our understanding of the economics of that situation. Before um, Safe answers, let me just invoke two important people, Schumpeter sure. and Keynes. Both Schumpeter <laughs> and Keynes said the same thing. That I mean, Schumpeter particularly is very, very interesting. Um, Schumpeter said, look, if you actually look at the history of America, he wrote this in a very famous paper published in 1941. You may, it's easy to come across. He's looking at the growth of America. He said, look, America absolutely confirms the strength of the List, List was the German economist, Alexander Hamilton, we've all heard of him. And List learned from Alexander Hamilton, the Alexander story of protecting um, uh, infant industries. And Schumpeter absolutely was opposed to globalization in that area, because he said the historical record is very clear, as I've just described, of copying other people behind protectionist barriers. And it just, it's worked historically successively. This sits very badly in with the ideology of libertarianism. And my friends at the Cato Institute glare at me and growl when I say these things. But the empirical facts are very clearly there. And the reason it's important to recognize those empirical facts is that economic growth does not come actually from competitive or comparative advantage. We all hear about these things and we all worship Adam Smith and we all worship David Ricardo. And of course, those give you efficiency advantages and they give you one-off static advantages. Of course they do. But economic growth comes from replacing vellum with paper, from ho replacing horses with motor cars. And that doesn't come from comparative or comparative advantage. That comes from R&D and innovation and the spread of ideas. And funnily enough, those things are not dependent upon the free movement of goods, capital, services, or people. They're dependent on the free movement of ideas. That's all you need. You, you capture the odd, you know, like Slater, Traitor Slater, who moved to America with uh, the textile industry uh, factory in his head. And the Japanese, of course, allowing a few products to copy them. But if you understand that economic growth is not about competitive and comparative advantage, economic growth is about innovation and the spread of ideas and copying other people's ideas, then you start to look at the world in a very, very different way. And that's what my next book is about. It's called, in some way yet, I've written the first draft, but it's not ready to go yet, but it's called something like Economic Growth the First Thousand Years, in which I point out that we are, that unlike Schumpeter and Keynes, 
both of whom understood this, by the way, we have been sold a neoliberal story of competitive and comparative advantage that's very, very convenient for the rich of the first world, but actually ain't so good for the rest. So I think SAFE is back. And oh, just, right. to, just, to, just to recap SAFE, I was just discussing with Terence. The, uh, Terence was making the argument that part of the economic success of Britain, the Netherlands, and the US and Japan was due to their protectionist barriers. And I was saying that for many in this group, that idea won't sit particularly comfortably with the way that we have we have analysed those economic phenomena in past discussions. So I was asking what, what your thoughts would be in response to that notion that protectionism was a positive force for the early economic development of countries like Britain and the US. I'm I'm sceptical. Um, I mean, it's uh, at the risk of uh, challenging Professor Keeley um, and, and uh, you know, getting my ass kicked. Um, I'm going to say, I think, you know, if you look at the, uh, sure, that there, that there were some elements of protectionism, but I would more, I'd be more likely to think that it was, uh, that the growth was happening in spite of the protectionism rather than uh, because of it. In other words, if the UK was, more closed off to trade than if it had higher trade barriers and if it had higher uh, import uh, tariffs, then probably things would have been slower. I don't think things would have been better. Um, you know, people like to point, for instance, recently to South Korea as an example of, you know, a country that had uh, trade barriers and interventionist government. But I think uh, when you compare it to North Korea, you see that it had relatively little uh, trade barriers, and that's what meant that it grew much faster than uh, North Korea. So, I'm, I'm sure those things existed, but I uh, I struggle to see how they could have benefited uh, Britain and the U.S. and made them, uh, you know, develop industrially better. Because in my mind, having the ability to import um, the inputs that you need for the production processes at the lowest cost possible is an enormous uh, driver of innovation. I wonder also whether Hong Kong would be a good counterexample, Terence, to the, to the idea that protectionism leads to, leads to rapid development. Well, Hong Kong and Singapore, they're entrepôts. Uh, Hong Kong import and export. Um, they're not, Hong Kong's not a great manufacturing base. So Hong Kong is, of course, an exception. I agree with you completely. Uh, I'm talking about a much larger country trying to become a, a manufacturing industrial country. Um, um, the, well, the empirical evidence is, is, is clear um, in the case of Britain, America, and, and South Korea. As these countries get richer, of course, so it's, it becomes in their interests to start exporting. And then under those circumstances, they become very keen on intellectual property because they want to protect the, what it is they are themselves producing. I would argue that what's important is that a free enough and big enough internal market the United States had a huge internal market and it was completely free. And so it was free to innovate. I certainly believe a small country can't be protectionist uh, for reasons that are obvious because it hasn't got the internal market to generate the competition. But the reason I've come sensitively to this whole business of protectionism is bluntly, and I say this with some reluctance actually, but there we are. Um, we are moving into a world of great populism. And I personally believe that the populist threat. I think we're handling it well. I think the Western world is not going to collapse into populism. But you look at countries like Poland and Hungary and, you know, in a mild way, Brexit or Trump, 
and the supporters and what's going on in Brazil and what's going on in Indonesia and places like that, there is this protectionist thing that's developing and we have to ask ourselves why. And I think globalization has contributed to that because of the undercutting of um, jobs for the poor. I also think we're moving into, uh, we're moving back into the world of geopolitics. China is definitely going to be a, a challenge to the rest of the world. And I think India and the United States and Western Europe and Russia, these countries are going to start becoming, we're moving to a different geopolitical world. And therefore, I ask myself, if we were to move into a world where the world had broken down into, say, five essentially separate economic blocks, would that be a problem? No. Each would be big enough to have enough competition internally for all that it needed. As long as uh, ideas move between them, that's all you would need for these things to work. And the reason I think that I've become more protectionist, I'm, I'm coming back to my earlier point, I'm sorry, is that I think that the disaffection of people's, of voters, from a sense of powerlessness that comes from a globalized world is very, very dangerous. And so we need the electorate to feel empowered. And globalization disempowers the electorate. That's, in a sense, the point of globalization. And I think it's become dangerous in that sense. I could be wrong. I mean, you'll notice that I'm talking about globalization in much more tentative ways than I am about other things. I'm prepared to be told I'm wrong. But there's a very good book, actually, I've just read by Johann Norberg called Open. And this is about the first, so if you haven't read it, I recommend it. And Johann is the, the first libertarian I know to write a book about libertarian economics. So the first half of Open is all about how wonderful free markets are. I believed every word. That was no problem. But the second half is, but look, there's this globalist, there's this anti-globalization reaction, and it's a very unpleasant reaction. Some very unpleasant people are being elected. As libertarians, we at least have to look at it. So I would go as far as to say as, Let's look at Open by Johan Norberg and let's think about to what extent globalization fuels, fuels populism. Uh, and after all, you know, 1933 Hitler and the wake of the globalization of the 1929 financial crisis, uh, does, does, there are precedents for um, globalization say, causing great damage. I'd say I think the uh, I, I would disagree with you here with you because I think um, the problems of what are being blamed on globalization are really the problems of a fiat monetary system. With the fact that global trade becomes a problem, uh, you know, if two people across an imaginary line in the sand are deciding to trade with one another, they both must see benefit from that trade or otherwise they would not have agreed with it. If this ends up being a problem for either of them or for other people involved, it's almost always the case that it is because of the manipulation of the currency. And it's because of the problems that people face with international trade in a hodgepodge of currencies, which has essentially devolved the global monetary system into a system of partial barter, whereby if I wanted to buy something from the UK, I need to first buy your money in the UK and then I need to buy your things because you can't accept my foreign currency. So this leads, you know, the, the, the uninvention of one global monetary system, which was with the case under the gold standard, leads to this world of balkanized uh, trading blocks and um, high inefficiencies in barter and then of course the fluctuation of the values of the currencies and of course the constant inflation all of which gets blamed on um, globalization and effectively the scapegoats 
end up being um, you know the, the idea of international free trade. But I think those are really distinct things. I think if uh, if we had a sane monetary system, these things wouldn't be a problem. You know, there were no, or there were very little problems. Of, there were there was probably more globalization in 1910 in the world than there was in 1990. But people were um, complaining much more about it in 1990 because it was built on a quicksand of uh, shifting national currencies. 90% of redundancies are caused by new technology, not by imports. You're yeah. absolutely right. Um, and you're, the world was very globalized in 1910, but look what happened in 1914. People like Keynes did actually blame the outbreak of the First World War to some extent on globalization. But to come back to your earlier point that we are into these blocks, the trouble is we live in nation states. We just do live in nation states. So now I'm moving away from economics into sort of geopolitics. If we live in nation states, then we have to ensure that those nation states are happy. Even So if a trade between A and B makes Z unhappy, then actually that's a problem for the nation state. That's really all I'm saying. But I, I find your interpretation very, very interesting. I'm sure that you are at least some degree right. You may be wholly right. I'm not qualified to tell, but I like your explanation. But what I would say, as with Johann Norberg, who is a great libertarian, he talks exactly like you, by the way, about trade, is that we live in nation states. If they're made unhappy by globalization, we should at least look at it and try to work out why that is. Because an unhappy nation state can result in some very unpleasant people being elected. I'll stop there. Yeah, well, you know, there is a constant running theme in this show that uh, we discuss a variety of topics, whatever they are. But the conclusion of each one is that Bitcoin fixes this. And so <laughs> today, you know, the issue of uh, government study, uh, government funding of science, and I think a lot of the discontents around globalization, I would like to believe that um, these are things that can be fixed by a, uh, f um, by a, a strong, hard monetary unit that wins its value on the market and achieves market acceptance. Well, by so doing, you'll hugely destroy and disempower the nation state. So that feeds into my argument. So I, we may be saying the same thing. Perhaps. I'd, I'd love to send you a copy of my book. I'll be emailing you about it. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I think I've been sent an e-copy. Is that not right? Yes, I think yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Peter yeah. sent you one. Yeah, that's right. But a, but a hard copy would be nice. I absolutely. find it much easier to read hard. A hard. I would love a hard copy. All right, absolutely. You got it. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Professor Keeley, for joining us. Cheers. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Bye.